a long, long time ago, before time began, there existed a kingdom. And this kingdom, all of its creatures that called that kingdom home experienced a true utopian experience. Everything worked exactly as it should. Everything was perfect and life was bliss. There were all kinds of creatures in this kingdom, creatures that if we could see them today, we would recognize and we would acknowledge. And then there were creatures that go beyond our ability of, to explain or describe or wrap our minds around how it could be a living thing. The primary residents of this kingdom were these creatures called angels. Angels, most of which took on a human-ish form. Some of them had wings. Some of them had uh, appendages that looked like instruments. And some of them had, uh, their, their flesh and their skin looked like, like jewels and diamonds and rubies as the exterior of their skin. Everything there was good and everything worked in harmony because everything revolved around its king. This king was not just a good king. This king was not just a strong king. This king was not just a, a wise king. This king was a perfect king. He was the embodiment of goodness. He was the originator of kindness. He was the creator of love. And everything in that kingdom circled and revolved and centered around him as their king. And under his rule, under his absolute power over time and matter and space, everything was perfect. But beneath the surface, there was something that was ugly and dark that was growing. It was like a black hole that, that had a belly that can never be satisfied. It was like a cancer that eventually metastasized and exploded and went from just being something that was small beneath the surface to becoming something that permeated the inhabitants of this kingdom. This thing was called pride. And pride was what filled and what fueled jealousy against the king. Eventually, this pride was fueled by rage, and rage led to a full-on mutiny led by the choir master of the kingdom. The choir master of the kingdom was an interesting creature. He was an angel, and he was one of those interesting creatures that his appendages were instruments and his skin uh, was filled with gems and rubies, and when the light would shine through it, he would refract in billions of different directions, and his name was Lucifer. And Lucifer did not like that only the king was the one who got glory and praise and honor. Lucifer was upset because he only got to direct the choir. He did not get to be the focus or the object of affection that the choir would sing about. And filled with rage and fueled by pride. Lucifer, in all of his radiant beauty and all of his incredible influence, was able to con a third of the angels of this kingdom to join sides with him, to believe this insidious lie that God is not to be trusted, that the king is not a good king. And even though he was fueled by pride with a desire to be worshiped as the king, he convinced a third of the angels of the kingdom 
that he knew best. Eventually, knowing that he had a third of the angels on his side, he eventually declares with all kinds of boldness what Isaiah 14 records for us when Lucifer says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. Catching wind of this declaration, the king, the almighty, all-powerful one, simply removed Lucifer and a third of the angels that became known as demons from the kingdom, from the only kingdom, the only existence that they had ever known. And it was in this moment that the epic battle between light and dark, between good and evil, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan began. And it's a clash that continues to this day, and, 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 and Satan, Lucifer, continues to this day to continue to spread his insidious lies, and he continues to, to um, foment insurrection among the inhabitants of God's creation. And all of this serves as the backdrop of time. It serves as the backdrop of the biblical narrative. When we open the pages of scripture in Genesis chapter one, all the way through the, book of the, the end of the book of Revelation, all of this is ultimately pointing to what the central theme of the, of the Bible is, of what scripture is, which is the kingdom of God and its advancement. And if you don't understand, if we as the readers don't understand this connection of God's kingdom and what he is doing in his kingdom, then when we pick up the Bible, we will be intended or we will be inclined to believe that it is nothing more than a whole bunch of unconnected dots that don't make sense. And, and if we don't understand the kingdom of God and don't understand that the Bible points to his kingdom in every book, chapter, and verse, then not only will we be led to the point of being confused, but it will lead many to do what many have done, which is to believe that they, the reader, are the point and the purpose and the means of scripture. And that ultimately all of it revolves around them instead of revolving around God. And it is into this Scenario that Jesus will eventually walk into the scene in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he will walk into this scene where there is a war that is raging. And the king will step into the plot line and he will deliver his magnum opus, his inaugural address what some call the Sermon on the Mount and what we are going to refer to over the course of the summer, his kingdom manifesto. Now listen, I hope that that stirs up some intrigue and some curiosity about where we're going this summer because if it doesn't, I don't know what more to do. Because we're gonna be diving into a series this summer called the Kingdom Manifesto and we're gonna be unpacking God's word. And during the summer, we like, to, we like to switch gears just a little bit as we dive a little bit deeper into the deeper things of God's word. The, the rhythm and the pacing and the cadence of the message changes just a little bit from normal as we dive into the depths and try to, try to, 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 to dive into the meat of the word of God. 
So I just want to encourage you, uh, if you're new with us, uh, man, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, If you've been with us for a while, but you haven't been with us through a summer series yet, I'm glad that you're here. And if you've been through a summer series with us, then you know, have your Bibles, have your pens, be ready to take notes, because we're going to dive in to the deep end of the pool. We're getting out of the kiddie pool for a little bit. Is that okay? Which isn't to infer that we're in the kiddie pool every other Sunday. Realize, as I said that. Anyway, it's good to meet you. My name is Journey, and it's my privilege to be the pastor here. If I've not met you yet, man, I'd love to meet you. Um, come say hi, say hi in the lobby after the service. Also, if you're new with us um, and you're, you're, you're wanting to know, man, what is my next step as a, as a follower of Jesus or because I have questions about Jesus or, or maybe you want to really connect and dive into, Erica talked a lot about, man, these are our people, man, you are my people. If you want to know more about that, I want to encourage you, jump into our Next Steps course. We start uh, at... At the beginning of every month, we start a new cycle. You can go online and check that out, man. We want to help you connect to Jesus and connect to why he created you. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to dive in. Um, let me see. Let me get caught up in my notes here. I got skipped around in my notes. All right. So we're going to start a series today called The Kingdom Manifesto. And the title of my message is The Big Picture. Oftentimes what happens is when we dive into the Bible, we oftentimes dive into the weeds of things, which is good. It's good that we do that. But sometimes we miss the bigger picture, the bigger thing that's going on. And here's, here's what you have to know when you open the Bible. And I've already alluded to this a little bit, that the advancement of God's kingdom for God's glory is the central theme of every page of scripture. That's the point of it. Every thing that you read in the Bible serves that purpose. And if we don't understand this, and if we don't understand what God's kingdom is and how God's kingdom operates and what is the point of God's kingdom, then we will be left so confused by so many of the things that happen in the pages of scripture. When Jesus comes in and he starts his Sermon on the Mount, which is where we're going to be spending our summer unpacking the Sermon on the Mount, or as we're calling it, the Kingdom Manifesto, when Jesus steps into this, he steps in as the king of the kingdom. And if we don't understand why he is saying what he's saying, that he's, he's establishing a framework about what his kingdom is. He's establishing a framework about how his kingdom operates. He's establishing a framework about how he desires and intends for the citizens of his kingdom to live and to operate by. And if we don't understand that, then we will read Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount and we will, we may have questions and we might be confused or worse, we'll read some of it and go, yeah, but that doesn't apply to me. And the reality of it is, is what Jesus presents to us in his kingdom manifesto is a presentation of his kingdom that is both inside out and upside down from the way that you and I would normally think about things and the way that you and I would normally do things. And at times it's going to be incredibly challenging. So my hope today and my goal today is to do two things. Number one, I want to walk you through, uh, I want to skip through the pages of scripture from front to back and I want to help you see and understand what God's kingdom is all about. And then the second thing that I want to do is I want to put handles on it so that you can see how it affects you today. I'm going to be using a framework that I came across in my studies from a pastor um, named David Kim in California that proved to be really helpful in kind of organizing my thoughts and, 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 and um, uh, funneling it into something that is tactile and tangible. So we're going to use this framework today. I um, mean, I've already shared the sequence of events that, that took place before we get into um, the, 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 the creation in Genesis chapter one. 
And what I want to do is we're going to start with the first step from there. And the first part that we see in God's word about his kingdom is we see his kingdom revealed. Now, Genesis chapter one and verse one begins in the beginning, God created. And right off the bat, what God is doing is he's letting us know that he was there before time began, that time and creation was all his plan. It was all his idea. It was all his agenda. He's establishing himself as the one who is the king of his kingdom. And then from there, he goes through a process of revealing his kingdom. When we get to Genesis 126, it says this, then God, uh, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what we see on the sixth day of creation is that God creates man. And God creates man with a built-in hierarchy and with a built-in authority structure. He's establishing that he wants people, he wants others to be involved in the, in the, uh, the responsibility of leading his kingdom. In fact, this word uh, that we see in Genesis 126, that it is the word dominion, it's the Hebrew word radah, which literally means to rule or to dominate. And so right from the very beginning, we see God revealing his kingdom and how his kingdom operates as he creates things. He, he places man in the middle of it with incredible access to him, with incredible responsibility and authority to be a partaker with him of his kingdom. But then the second thing that we see is we see the kingdom forfeited. When we get to Genesis chapter three, we meet Satan. Now, Satan is not a new character in the story arc of God's kingdom, but he is a new character in the story arc of the Bible. And Satan is in the form of a serpent. This is Lucifer, also known as the devil. He is, he is in the form of a serpent. He comes across Adam and Eve and he sees them in the garden and he knows that God has given them authority to rule and have dominion. And he also knows that he's given them freedom to be able to eat from any tree that they want except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what Satan does is he slithers his way in and he sees his shot. In the same way that he coerced the angels of heaven to rebel against God by believing that God is not good, his ways are not good, and he is not to be trusted. He slithers himself into the narrative with Eve and he challenges her in Genesis 3, verse 1. It says, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He's getting her to question the goodness and the authority of God. And from here, Satan and Eve have a little back and forth, but unable to match wits with him, Satan baits the hook and he convinces her that she needs to eat of the tree. Verse six says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant for the eyes and desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. You see, what Satan did is he tapped in to a good desire that Eve had to be with God, to be close to God, to be like God. He tapped in to her desire to want to be closer and he convinced her by a series of questions that if she, if she could be like God, then she could be closer to God. And the only reason why God hasn't led her to do this is because God is holding out on her. And fooled by the devil's words, and fueled by the same prideful desire that he had when he was still in heaven, humanity forfeited its role in the kingdom. And once again, Satan successfully 
manipulates and cons and deceives God's creation to rebel against him as their king. All by getting them to doubt his goodness, his power. God has lost the battle in this moment, but he makes it clear just a few verses later that he has no intentions on losing the war. Matter of fact, what happens after this is God begins to uh, issue a curse on Satan, on Eve, and on Adam because of how they rebelled against him in this moment. And in God's curse to the serpent, this is what he says in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Notice that the, the second word seed is capitalized with a, a capital S. It's not referring to a thing, but a person. This is referring to Jesus. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now there's something deeper that's going on here that we have to understand because in 2 Corinthians chapter four and verse four, it tells us that Satan is the God, little g, of this age, meaning that God has allowed Satan to have God-like authority on this planet, on planet earth, but it is under the authority of God Almighty. God has allowed it, he has permitted it, and he is working in the midst of it. And what this means is, is when, what Genesis 3.15 has, says when it, that he will put enmity between your seed, speaking to Satan, and the woman's seed, speaking about Jesus, what he's saying is, is that every single person, because of what has happened in this moment in the Garden of Eden, that every single person born from this point forward is born the seed of Satan. Translation, that literally means that we are all the bad seed. Now, some of us think about, some of us joke about that in our family. If you have multiple siblings, maybe you joke, you know, hey, no, you're, you're the bad seed. But what God is saying is that we're all the bad seed because we are all born after this moment that happened. We are born not into righteousness, but into sin. And what God says is that the seed of the woman, which is Jesus, will bruise the head of the serpent. And what this is, is God's first breadcrumb of hope. It's God's first breadcrumb that's pointing and leading the way throughout the rest of the Old Testament that points that there will be a Messiah, a rescuer, who will once and for all annihilate the devil and all of his schemes and all of his wickedness. Theologians call this a messianic prophecy. It is a prophetic thing pointing to the Messiah, which is Jesus. And from this point, all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, what we see unfold is that restoration is introduced. That in the Garden of Eden, God lost the battle, but he's not gonna lose the war. And he's already put a plan in place with the first breadcrumb, with the first messianic prophecy, leading to the hope that is gonna be found in Jesus. Ultimately, what we see when we fast forward to Genesis chapter 12 is we come across the man named Abram and his wife Sarai. Now their names later get changed to Abraham and Sarah. But God finds Abram and Sarai and he, he approaches them and he, he issues them a challenge. And connected to this challenge is an incredible promise. I want you to notice this in Genesis chapter 12 in verse one. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I want you to notice this because this is very intentional. There's something significant that begins to happen here that's gonna sound familiar to what we read in the beginning of what Lucifer said in Isaiah chapter 14. Notice what God says. He says, I will make you a great nation. 
I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And, I, uh, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, in Lucifer's insurrection, what he was trying to do was he was trying to promote himself above God. And he did so by declaring these five I will statements that he was going to do. And, and as we know, by the end of the story, none of those five things happened. It's interesting that what God does here, as God begins to lay the framework for how he's going to advance his kingdom now, is he, he comes to Abram and Sarai. Remember, they are of the seed of Satan. They are born in the seed of Satan, in the, in, the, in the kingdom of darkness. And God basically busts into Satan's little dominion and he identifies a couple people. He woos them with his goodness, his kindness, and his love. And he says, listen, Lucifer, you said some I will stuff and it never came to, came to pass. Now I've got some I wills that I'm gonna say. And he makes these incredible promises to Abraham and to Sarah. And God tests their faith with these directions to move and then he follows it with a conditional promise that is predicated on their obedience. Now, a little, a little side note for just a moment. This, by the way, is why um, Christians are pro-Israel. This is the reason why a little section of ground in the Middle East um, that, 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 that we know as Israel um, is so hotly contested and has been the most hotly contested ground in the history of humanity because God has promised this land to his people, the nation of Israel. Now, just because we say, and I don't have time to unpack all of this, but just because we say, we read God's word and go, okay, God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, right? Just because we see that and go, okay, we're pro-Israel does not mean that we vote in favor of every decision that the government of Israel makes, but it does mean that we as Christians are pro-Israel as a nation. In fact, it is almost an oxymoron for a Christian to say that they are anti-Israel because if you are anti-Israel, then you are against your Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And if you are against your Jewish Messiah, Jesus, then you are on the wrong side of history. And you're on the wrong side of God. Now, again, that's probably another series of messages for another day, but I felt the need to talk about that just for a second. When we fast forward to Genesis chapter 15, what we see is that God makes another incredible promise to Abraham and Sarah that he is going to make him the father of many nations. Abraham and Sarah are advanced in age. They're very wealthy. They don't have any kids, even though they've been trying for, for years to make it happen. And now in their advanced elderly age, God says, listen, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And he makes an incredible promise that the, the number of children that will be linked to Abraham will be greater than the number of stars that are in the skies. Also, isn't that interesting? Remember what Lucifer said when he said, I will exalt myself above the stars of God. And now God is saying, watch how I'm going to advance my kingdom through this guy. And I'm going to give him so many kids that it will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And from this point throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we track the journey of this man's family. It starts with Abraham and Sarah. It goes to Jacob. Then Jacob has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribes of Israel eventually become known as the nation of Israel or the Hebrews or the Jews. And by connection through heritage, Jesus, being a Jew, being connected to the lineage of Abraham, when anyone places their faith in Christ for salvation, then they are connected to the family tree of Abraham. And Abraham's family now extends across the globe and speaks many languages. 
It has many different complexities and many different complexions. And God has delivered on his promise. And all throughout the midst of the Old Testament, God continues to lay one breadcrumb after another and the unfolding story of this family and the unfolding revelation of God's kingdom. And one breadcrumb after another pointing to this one, the Messiah, who would come and finally deliver God's people. The next step on the journey as we run through the pages of scripture, we see that God's kingdom is reclaimed. When Jesus does come into the scene, in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter one, verse 15, what we see is that he's about 30 years old now, and one of the first things that Mark records that Jesus ever says publicly is this. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What a bold declaration. Now, if someone were to walk into your house and say, the kingdom uh, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand like you would kind of laugh at them because in America, in Kansas City, around these parts, we don't talk about kingdoms unless we're talking about a silly football team. Right, like if Tom Brady were to come into your house and say that, you would smack him. But in this day, that's how the world operated through one king, one leader, advancing his agenda against others. Jesus is making it known that the war has been raging for thousands of years, but the war is about to make a pivotal turn now that I'm here. Because Jesus walks into the scene as the warrior king, the one with the rightful authority to rule the kingdom. And he tells them to believe in the gospel. This word gospel, by the way, means good news. He says, believe this good news. Here's the good news. The good news is that things have been broken. Things have been busted. Things have been dark. Things have not been working. But the good news is, is that God's kingdom has not been destroyed. God's kingdom has not been demolished. God's kingdom is alive and well, and it is about to make a big advancement against the kingdom of darkness. And while he was here on earth, Jesus performs miracles. He casts out demons. He teaches these things that challenges the status quo. Part of his ministry is this kingdom manifesto that we're going to dive in depth in starting next week. And all of it, Jesus is pointing to the fact that he is the promised redeemer. He's the promised Messiah. He is the rescuer, the one who is going to finally make it all right. And it was at his crucifixion that the devil thought he had done it again. Once again, he had thwarted God's plan. Once again, he had subverted the agenda of his enemy. But as is always the case, the devil never seems to fully understand or grasp the breadth, the power of the king of the kingdom. And while the devil danced on Jesus' grave, he thought that he had won. Jesus shows and proves that he came to deliver the knockout blow for the kingdom of God because he would do something that nobody had ever done before. You see, there are a lot of people who proclaim to be God and a lot of people proclaim that they would die and come back. 
Most of the people who proclaimed to be God tried to prove that they were God by avoiding death. But Jesus proved that he was God not by avoiding death, but by going through death and coming out on the other side of it. And at his resurrection, the devil said, oh, snap. And in one fell swoop, Jesus eliminated three of the four greatest obstacles to his kingdom. Satan, sin, and death. And when Jesus ascends into heaven in Acts chapter one, he leaves his church as his army and he gives them their marching orders. He tells them, go be my witness. All the things that you've seen and heard from me, all the incredible miracles that I've done, the things that I've performed, how I told you that I was the Messiah, how, I, how, how you saw that I came back from the grave, how I did these impossible things. And now as I'm ascending into heaven, go be my witnesses everywhere and tell them about me. And in a similar fashion that we saw in the Old Testament from Genesis 3 through the rest of the Old Testament with Abraham's family, the rest of the New Testament tracks this new thing called the church and their journey to try to do what it is that Jesus commanded them to do. And then the final stop in the journey as we skip through the pages of scripture, we ultimately see God's kingdom fulfilled. Because Jesus, when he left, he promised that he would come back. And when we get to Revelation 19, we see something incredible. And it says this in verse 11. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords. You see, it's in this moment that is still yet to come that anyone who questioned whether who the king was and whose kingdom it was, he removes all doubt. And he brings an amazing victory. And all those who stand on his side as followers of Jesus, having been spiritually reborn by placing your faith in him, will stand with him in that victory. And ultimately, after Jesus brings the victory, then he will usher in, after thousands and thousands of years of devastation, of heaven and earth that's been waged through this war, this spiritual war that we cannot see oftentimes with our own eyes, Jesus responds by bringing a new heaven and a new earth. And the book of Revelation ends where the book of Genesis began, with humanity in paradise with God and his kingdom. Now listen, 
I realize that a lot of what I'm saying here can be kind of up in the clouds, super ethereal. And it, it, could be, it could be natural for us to go, okay, I just drank from a fire hydrant. Um, what do I do with that? I want to help you with it. It's critical that we understand God's kingdom because if we don't understand God's kingdom, then we will have so much difficulty understanding God's word. We'll have so much difficulty understanding God's ways and we'll have so much difficulty understanding the things that God leads us to, those precipice moments where he calls us to jump and we don't want to because it seems unfair, unloving, unkind, unjust, unsafe, and uncomfortable. But when we understand the kingdom of God and what God is doing and what he's trying to paint a picture of all across the pages of scripture, then it allows us to approach every moment and every step of life differently, including understanding what Jesus is going to be teaching us over these next several weeks through the summer of his kingdom manifesto. That the point of the kingdom manifesto isn't about stuff that makes me feel good, although there will be things that will make you feel good. The point of his kingdom manifesto is the king has arrived onto the scene and he is making his inaugural address. This is my kingdom. This is how it operates. This is what we're going to do. And this is what I expect of you. And much of it will be upside down from what we think. And as we're going to see, so much of it is going to be backwards from the way that we would do it because we oftentimes view things from the outside in, but Jesus is going to start from the inside and work out. In order to try to help make this tangible and tactile for you, I want to ask you a question. Once you think about any story of any king that you've ever heard or read or known of, a king, a leader, What happens when the people rebel against the king? When the insurrection takes place? When the treasonous people begin to, to sow discord and disunity amongst the kingdom against the king? What happens to those people when they're found out? It doesn't usually work out well for them, does it? No, the reality of it is in almost any story that you have ever known, fictional or not, that when the king finds out that there is an insurrection, a mutiny, that treason is happening in his kingdom, there is usually a very swift response. And in almost every story that I've ever known, that I've ever heard of, these types of acts are considered a capital offense. Now, we live in, an, in a civilized society and we just, we, we, we put people through a due process and they go to jail for a long time. But in most nations, in most kingdoms, it was death on the spot. God's kingdom doesn't operate any differently. Anytime his subjects, which is anyone who has a pulse, choose to rebel against him, defy him, choose to not trust him, choose to be treasonous towards him, anytime that we rebel against his authority or refuse his instruction, 
We're doing something that the Bible calls sin. The problem with this word sin is that it's kind of become a thing that its potency has been diluted by familiarity. If you're in the church, if you've spent time in the church, oftentimes when you think of sin, you probably think of, oops, but this isn't a Britney Spears song. If you're not a child of the 90s, oops, I did it again. (laughs) And so what happens is, is we oftentimes view sin as this common thing, this familiar thing, this thing that doesn't really matter. If you have not spent a lot of time in the church, or maybe at one point you did and you walked away, when you think of sin, you think of, you know, all the, all the judgment, all the judgment and condemnation and, and, and the, the, the harsh tones that are directed towards you. And you probably usually think of hypocrisy. The truth is, is that every time that you and I sin against God, this is what's happening. In that moment, we are aligning ourselves with his old foe, the devil. We're saying yes to the same insidious lie that the devil has been peddling since before time began that God is not good, the king is not to be trusted. I know better, you should follow me. And when we sin, we're saying yes to join again the ranks of the enemy. And it's not something that God takes casually, it's not something that God takes lightly. Every time that we lie, Every time that we cheat, every time that we have hatred in our heart towards somebody, every time that we think of or participate in any type of immoral act, any time that we subject ourselves to impurity or any type of fornication, what we're doing in that moment is we are saying, God, you are not to be trusted. You are not a good king. I like what the devil's selling and I'm gonna join his team for a minute. This is the reason why James says in James chapter four, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? This is the same word that God used when he told the serpent, Satan, that I will put enmity between you and her, between your seed and her seed. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, the reality of it is, is we like to think of ourselves as good people. And I think that oftentimes we try to be. the real story is, is that we're not. That all of us are born into the kingdom of darkness. We don't have to do anything to get there except be born. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, with as much love as I can possibly muster, you're not, you're not, you're not as good of a person as you think you are. You may do good things from time to time. 
But even deep down in the depths of your own soul, you know that there is something inside of you that causes you to think of those things, to process those things, sometimes to even do things that you can't believe that you did. And if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, you were born in the kingdom of darkness, but he saved you from that to be a part of his kingdom, the kingdom of light, to be a citizen of heaven. And even though we try to think of ourselves as good people, the reality of it is, is every single moment that we choose sin, we choose to become the villain. You see, no one ever wants to think of themselves as the villain in the story. That doesn't sell many books. When we understand this, and we understand how significant sin is, the price that Jesus paid, and it causes us to understand repentance differently. It causes us to not see repentance as this $9 theological word or this thing that preachers throw around every once in a while. But it causes us to see repentance as the recognition that at some point I begin, I begin to stop following Jesus and I begin to march in cadence, in sequence, in step with the army of the kingdom of darkness. And repentance is saying, God, I don't, I, I don't know how I got here. I didn't intend to be here. God, this, this is so much more than what I thought it was. And, and, and sin is so much more significant than I thought it was. Repentance is coming to that moment and turning away from that and going, God, would you help me? Would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you lead me? And every single time, Jesus will graciously and patiently come to where we are and he will provide a new cadence and a new direction and a new pace where we can walk back in line with who we were designed to be to walk as children of God, as citizens of the kingdom of light. And when we understand all of this, then we begin to see something that's altogether different. That our sin is a seditious act against the king. And the conviction is always guilty. And the sentence is always death. But as we stand before the king in those moments, we begin to see that there's something different about this king. Because after he slams the gavel and says guilty, and after he slams the gavel and says punishable by death, then the king of the kingdom of light stands up. And he takes off his robe that Isaiah says fills his temple with glory. He steps down off of his high and holy place. He comes to us and he removes the shackles from our hands 
And he tells the bailiff, put them on me. And the king looks at you in the face and he says, I love you. I always have and I always will. And the king marches out the doors, climbs to the top of the gallows, the hangman's noose wrapped around his neck and the executioner says, guilty, punishable by death. And the king dies in our place. The hero dies for the villain. There's only one story like that. And what God wants for us to understand today that at the moment that Jesus died, I told you that he removed three of the four biggest obstacles to his kingdom, Satan, sin, and death. The fourth obstacle he cannot remove. Because the fourth obstacle is apathy in the heart of man towards this good news. And instead of forcing it on you, what he does and what he's always done is he's come into the domain of the king of darkness, the God little g of this age. And he just says, aren't you tired? Aren't you worn out and weary? Won't you come to me and let me give you rest? See, the king recruits from enemy territory. And the theme of scripture is the advancement of his kingdom for his glory against the kingdom of darkness. The good news of this kingdom is that everyone is welcome to participate. And as we start this journey through Jesus' kingdom manifesto, I want to offer you the same opportunity that Jesus offered when he started. When he said, repent and believe in the good news. Here's the bad news. We are all born into the kingdom of darkness. But the good news is that by placing your faith in Jesus, you can be moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. From being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And to accepting and receiving a love that is so great and so profound that it will change everything that you ever thought you knew about your life and about this king. At Discover Church, we exist to see our city changed by Jesus, one life at a time. If you'd like to take your next step of faith today, text the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. Again, that's the word FAITH to 816-203-1835. If this is your first time listening, we'd love to connect. 
Reach out to us on social media and let us know that you've found us through the Discover Church podcast. Thanks for listening.